Uh, yeah. So I decided after talking with John Bashara, because of the timeliness of SARS-CoV-2 and how much duty I feel to start giving people all you guys to listen and give us the, the very valuable resource of your time, I felt it was our obligation to run John's interview concurrently with Wendy Dean's. And so you are going to hear, depending on where I put this, I'll probably put this little thing on both Wendy and John's episodes. You're going to hear this little little disclaimer up front. It's nothing against Wendy Dean and Simon Talbot. Moral injury is a big deal. But, you know, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. So if I get both of these episode series up in the same three-week period, I think it'll benefit a lot more people than if I just do one and then the other and it takes six weeks. So forgive me if it seems confusing about the uh, production schedule, but I'm going to really tackle that and hopefully give you guys something to think about. That's my disclaimer. Now let's get on to this episode. Rotations is all about allowing interesting people the opportunity to share their opinions and ideas. Some listeners may find the opinions and the content expressed disturbing and or objectionable. All right, I think we're both here. This is great. I'm, I'm sorry this was so short notice. It really wasn't. We, we, we talked... Well, yeah, we have been... We had been tracking it and then for whatever reason um it we lost the bubble it's kind of busy it's been busy since christmas <laughs> it's all bandwidth it's all bandwidth and nobody has any bandwidth which may may be a nice preface for what we're going to talk about as physicians having no bandwidth right and we yeah. all suffer from that so this is good Hello, everyone. This is Todd Fredericks, DO, uh, Associate Professor at The Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine in lovely but rainy Athens, Ohio. And it is uh, this, uh, this episode of Rotations is being recorded at about 6.35 Eastern. And um, it uh, is because the people I'm going to interview this evening are busy people. They are physicians, and they have things to do, and they've got a lot of meetings, and they've got a lot of things to talk about. Uh, but it's... Um, been something I've been looking forward to about having this discussion. And so it's well worth coming in or staying late this evening. I would also ask you guys to bear with me. I, I took the liberty of an academic to work in my woodshop today, knowing I was going to be interviewing people later in the evening. And I had an interview for myself earlier today. So I worked in my woodshop. I happen to be terribly allergic to wood, even though I'm an avid lover of woodworking and I forgot to take my Claritin D. So if you hear me sniffling, it's not because I, I wanted to, it's because I my oversight coming to town, I forgot my Claritin D, so bear with me. So um, Wendy Dean, MD, and Simon Talbot, MD, are two people that are involved with something called the moral injury of healthcare. And the moral injury of healthcare, which they're going to explain to us in detail, is an interesting concept. Some of you guys may refer back to some of the things that Pamela Weibel talked to us about two years ago, um, about her great concern about physician suicide. Um, I have myself used the term burnout, but when I read about the term moral injury, um, the term burnout seemed less compelling. And so I don't think I can do it as good a justice as Dr. Dean and Dr. Talbot can, so I'm going to ask them. Dr. Dean, maybe you lead off and then Dr. Talbot follows. Tell, tell us about your background and where you're coming from in the context of moral injury or beyond that, if you'd like. 
and thank you for for taking your time out of your evening to help me. <laughs> well, it, it's a pleasure. It's always um, it's always great to have this conversation and to know that it's reaching even further than it has um, in the last eighteen months. Um, so, my background is uh, I trained as a I initially started training as a surgeon. I practiced in the emergency room for a couple of years, and then went back and retrained as a psychiatrist. And um, along the way, what I was trying to do was to um, find a way to practice medicine that I thought was good for my patients and sustainable for me. And it took me until about three years ago to be able to put a name to it. And and the name was moral injury because what I realized was I I was caught between um, knowing what my patients needed and not being able to get it for them for any number of reasons. And what that did was it, it really um, interfered, it put a barrier between the oath that I took to take care of them, the promise that I made to my patients that I would always put them as a priority. And over the course of a really kind of winding path, um, which included working for the Army during the time when there was a, a, the explosion in the, of suicide or, or the attention to suicide, um, and it really caused um, quite a, an uproar in the Army um, and led to a lot of research and mitigation strategies for suicide. Um, and that's how I came to think differently about what physicians were facing because I saw a lot of parallels. Okay, I I, 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 I I do too. And just so you guys can contextualize this, I'm glad you mentioned the military because we just finished in our new curriculum our first dedicated week for our second years on veterans health care. And one of the things I brought up to them was the number 22, which of course is the average number of veteran suicides uh, every day. And it was amazing to look at really eager second year medical students and say, we're now past in the last 10 years, the total number of people killed in Vietnam, the number of veterans who've killed themselves in the last 10 years. And, I, and putting that in context for them was, a, I think, an eye-opening thing for them. Uh, we gave them a lot of direct instruction on PTS and on um, veterans as a culture and as a unique subgroup of, of Americans. And and so it's really interesting. So I, I imagine as a former military medical person, you can understand the implications of 22. Right. So yeah. let me let me just clarify that I never wore a uniform, but I was a government civilian managing Department of Defense Research funding. Well, you'd be happy to know that one of the things we introduced to them, too, about working with veterans is that there's plenty of DOD contractors that work in direct care of active military people, not to mention the entire structure of the VA. So the, they understand that. They understand you can be a part of the military community and not be wearing a uniform. So I'm pretty happy about that, that we got that through to them, because I think there's a, a civil military gap, which is a different topic, but and something that I think might help care for veterans if we ever bridge it. But um Okay, that's good. Uh, any further thoughts before Simon gives us some of his background? Uh, no, I'll, I'll let Simon go ahead. Okay, Simon, tell us. Where are you coming from with this? So, uh, so I, uh, I'm a, a reconstructive plastic surgeon and hand surgeon. Um, I have a very busy uh, practice in Boston, fixing uh, people who injure themselves or who have uh, cancer, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I also have a, a strong interest in research, and so my 
primary research has been uh, taking care of people who um, lose their limbs uh, through former uh, or, or other, other reasons for them to have amputations. And my team at the Brigham and Women's Hospital uh, uh, work on limb transplantation. And so uh, that's actually one of the ways that I met Wendy the first time uh, because a lot of the work we do is with the military and Wendy was working with the military funding I think at that stage, so that's how we tie in together. Um, but to bring us back to moral injury and, and burnout, um, I, um, like many people over the last few years, was asked to fill out a survey a few years ago by my hospital to say how I was feeling on the burnout spectrum. And as I was filling out the survey, I realized that, you know what, I, I looked pretty bad on that survey um, <laughs> yeah. when it comes to the, the, the three components, exhaustion, depersonalization, um, and lack of accomplishment. And, you know, in spite of having a really successful practice and research interest, I was starting to fall into a category where I said, well, you know, where's it headed to me and, and what do I want to do with all this and, and how am I going to keep going and doing it? And um, it was then that Wendy and I started speaking um, and both of us realized that although we came from very different backgrounds and had very different jobs and careers, um, we both found this common situation where the thing that wore us out the most, the thing that made it so difficult for us to do what we wanted to do was that there were a lot of things getting in the way of taking good care of patients. And um, that is where the uh, idea of moral injury being a prime driver of uh, physician distress and ultimately physician burnout came from, as we both realized that uh, much of the, the, the distress that we felt in these kind of jobs was that there were things getting in the way of taking care of patients. And that might be insurance prioritizations, it might be quotas to get through a certain amount of work, either dollars or RVUs. It might be uh, the amount of time that you have with a patient being uh, too short to do what you feel you need to do with them. And there's, there's myriad other things, but that's where this, uh, this whole idea came from. Yeah, I think uh, I, I'm. I'm this is really good. I like I like where this is going. So I had in the script, it was out of sequence. I think it's good for people listening to understand that the term burnout historically is very different from the concept of moral injury. So perhaps I can get you guys to distinguish the two. What is burnout and what is moral injury? So burnout is really a constellation of symptoms. Um, it is feeling like you're emotionally exhausted, um, you no longer have a sense that you're effective at what you do. And you also start to depersonalize those around you. Um, so you, you become less, less able to engage in relationships and less able to engage with your work. Moral injury, on the other hand, is um, bearing witness to or perpetrating acts that transgress deeply held moral beliefs. And in healthcare, what that means is that oath that we took, the promise that we made to put our patients first. I think that's really that's, that's really the distinction in its essence and by definition. But then when you think about it, burnout also has a connotation that it's the individual who is somehow lacking. And when you look at moral injury, what you're saying is the the in the the individual is struggling as a result of a broken system. Hmm. I, my understanding. Let me add one other thing to that. Oh, please, Simon. 
I wanted to think of that. Just that um, we, we've talked for a long time about burnout in, in healthcare. Um, and as Wendy said, uh, burnout is, is symptoms. Burnout is, is, is this constellation of symptoms, exhaustion, depersonalization, and lack of accomplishment. And there's a number of different ways you can get there. Um, but as we've spoken to people more and more and more, we've realized that, that um, one of the ways you can get there and one of the ways that resonates with so many different clinicians is through moral injury, uh, mm. pushing them beyond their their tolerance levels into into uh, burnout. And so I think uh, the difference between moral injury and burnout when we talk about them is uh, moral injury, we're talking about the ideology, we're talking about the cause of it, burnout is symptoms, and you can get there through a number of different ways. I'm glad you did that follow-up, Simon, because that's what I was going to get at is connecting this, that it, at least this this way of looking thing, looking at burnout looks at moral injury as one of the factors that leads to burnout. Um, I think it's important maybe that the audience listening knows that burnout was a term that's co-opted from, from drug addicts, right? I mean, it was a term used to describe drug addicts in the 70s that had basically reached their end. They were completely basically burned out. They they were done. I think it was uh, physicians that commented about that phenomenon that was actually ascribed to addicts and started relating it to actual feelings in, in healthcare, a feeling burned out. And um, I, I, I can I can relate to this, and I, I, I think people will too as they listen more. So when does this start? When does when does moral injury, as we see it in healthcare, where do you guys see this starting? Is it something that starts early in training, before medical school, during after medical school, postdoctoral? What do you guys see as a, a general trend? So, um, I think I, I think if you look at the disillusionment with what you thought medical school would be when you, or what you thought medicine would be when you originally went into it, when you decided to go into it, um, I think that is starting to happen relatively early. Um, there's pretty good evidence that medical students come in with a lower level of depression than, than their age match peers, but that within two years they have a higher level of depression. Now, whether that's, whether those are, um, you know, whether that's related to the workload, the isolation, or um, the process not being quite what they expected it to be, it's hard to parse those out. But there, there certainly is some evidence that um, medical students start to struggle sometime in the first two years. As far as moral injury, I think it's, go ahead. No, I was just to say, is the, is the struggle just the unanticipated workload? Because my focus is in preclinical education, and so I know that they get hit uh, with a sledgehammer. Um, even if they've come from a fairly rigorous undergraduate program, medical school is just a whole different level of of tasking. I think anybody who's gone through medical school would agree to that. Um, you can come from extremely rigorous undergraduate background, unless you've been in a discipline like, say, engineering or physics or something, where it was just really, really demanding on time. I, I'm not. I'm wondering if that's it. What What is it? What is it that starts that depression? Is it, or is it just the whole milieu? Is it just everything that's involved? Changes in in social structure, all, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What do you think about that, Wendy? I don't. Know. I think. Or both. Sorry, I'm not sure. So I, I don't. I don't think you can limit it to one thing. I think it's. I think it's the whole soup put together. Yeah. 
But I think a huge driver of this, Todd, is, is, the, is the disconnect between your intention of going out there to help people and your wake-up call to the reality of what's going on. As a medical student, I think almost everybody goes into their interview and says, I, I want to I take care of people. I want to help people. There's very few people who go into their interview at medical school and say, you know, I'm, I'm in this for the money. <laughs> I'm, I'm here because I want to figure out how to get more RVUs out of the system. People go in because they want to take care of people. And when, when you see that there are aspects that contradict that, that taking care of people or that there are things that make it difficult and unnecessarily difficult to take care of people, I think that's where the crux happens. And sometimes that's in medical school when your eyes are open to what's going on. Sometimes it's later when you have to choose, are you going to do this for the patient or are you going to follow what the insurance company says or are you going to um, see more patients per hour and give them less quality care uh, or are you going to sit down and spend more time with them and it's, 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 so as you get more senior, I think you have more of those conflicts. Yeah, it's interesting because I am a recovering ER physician and um, I finished my career related to that actually in urgent care where I was basically in an RBU mule. And, um, you know, the, we would, you know, talk to the, the folks in charge and say, you know, we don't have any backup and we're not, we don't have any breaks. We're just running people through like cattle. And the response was, well, we're going to expand hours. And um, so, yeah, and I noticed that because now I work as a, psych, a state psychiatric hospital hospitalist. And of course, the work, the pace of work is much different. And I recently had a clinical experience with a uh, first-year medical student. And the, I remember how toxic I felt demonstrating the urgent care medicine to students that would come in uh, and just this sort of mill of just running people through and feeling inadequate about addressing their needs, knowing that they had a lot of them that couldn't be addressed. And now where I have a lot of time afforded, a more, more acute, uh, a deeper level of care, of course, but lots of time to think about the patient, to talk to them, to talk to the student about them. It really is a big difference. And I, I'm thinking about this as we're talking about this, about it never really occurred to me that we were introducing this by, by you know, we, we pride ourselves on early clinical experiences at OUHCOM that our students start seeing patients within the first couple weeks of medical school and do that routinely. But we're modeling this and they're seeing it. They're, I guess the scales are falling from their eyes within the first few weeks of medical school about what medicine really is. That's got to be a really, really big burden for a lot of them. I, I think so. And I think it's also difficult for those of us who are involved in teaching because we don't want to take away that enthusiasm and we don't want to take away that vigor. Um, and it's a fine line that you have to tread between teaching someone the, the 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 important things in medicine, but also how to do those within a system that's not always geared to take the best care of the patient. Well, Simon, let me ask you: Did you ever have you? Can you do you have? A, I'm assuming you do. Have you experienced that at a stage in your life where you saw yourself toxic with students? Just I, I I'll give you. I'll die myself out. Five years ago, six years <laughs> ago, I was basically questioning a student that would come in. Why would you even do this? Why don't you get out now while you're young? I mean, that's how bad it was. And I realized I had to make a change. We might get into that in terms of methodologies of addressing this. But did you ever find yourself in those situations when you're signing with students? It's a great question. I, I definitely found myself in that situation where I've, um, where I've been caught between either <laughs> exposing them to something that I feel like they, 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 they need, but in, at the same time not wanting to take away their enthusiasm. You know, for example, you know, they they suggest we do a particular set of tests, and 
I know that that's going to require numerous prioritizations and maybe impossible to get those tests for the patients, but to try and to, to have to say that to the student, like, like let's not do this because it's, it's, it's going to be difficult. It's a, it's a really hard thing to do. Similarly, knowing that there is just too much work on one's plate to be able to spend the time teaching the student the way that you want to teach them and saying, hey, you know, maybe I'm come to my clinic today because I know that it's just going to be a phenomenal amount of work and I'm not going to have time to, to teach you the way that you need to be taught. You know, and, and then the example you, you give is exactly another one, another common one. So I think all of us who teach uh, experience this regularly. What about you, Wendy? Have you been in the same place? So I haven't been in a position where I'm teaching medical students or residents for a long time, but um, I certainly haven't encouraged my kids to go into medicine. Yeah, that's a weird thing, isn't it? You meet, I, I do know doctors that do, but I didn't. I mean, I, I, I encourage my kids to pursue passions, things that they really, really like to do and that they felt their purpose was directed towards. And I know a lot of physicians that discourage their children from going into medicine. That's, and it's troubling, too, because you would think, you know, we should be in a profession where, I mean, we have societal respect, we, we make good incomes, we get to help people, we get to do all sorts of things. That's the perception, right? It's a very weird thing to be discouraging people from doing something that has so many positives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's, and, and, it, and it challenges for the future, too, because you'd think if there are people to be predisposed to be successful physicians, it would be the children of physicians who would be armed with a lot of knowledge going in of, well, I know what the pitfalls are. Yeah? Yeah. Well, in order, as well as continue to frame this in context, what are the statistics on, on burnout physician, in physicians? Um, I noticed that you know, the, there's this thing called the mini Z and the Moloch burn, burnout scale, things I was not familiar with until I started kind of looking at this in preparation for this. What, what do we see or do we have adequate numbers? Do we have any idea how many doctors are really experiencing these problems in, in contemporary American society? Or is, is it something, I, I think I know the answer, is it something that people just don't want to really know about? So it depends on what, what survey you look at. Anywhere between... 42% and 78% of physicians that are surveyed, depending on the survey, will acknowledge having one or more symptoms of burnout. Um, there isn't, we are, we are in the process of validating the measure for moral injury, but there is not a measure for that in healthcare at the moment. Suffice it to say, no matter what the numbers are, they're much too high. Hmm. Even if it's 42%. That means almost half of physicians are struggling mightily with what they do every day. And the, at least from the people that we've talked to, um, it seems as though moral injury is a significant portion of, is a, is a major contributor to that 42% who are struggling. Because doctors say, doctors say, I love my job. I love I love my patients. I, I, I love I love the work. I love medicine, and I love my patients. But what I what really gets me is all of the stuff that's around that. Yeah, that makes it hard to get patient care. To put some numbers to moral injury, although we haven't um, been able to give you specific numbers, when Wendy and I started talking about this, this was essentially a thought experiment. The first paper we wrote on this was an opinion piece 
see if anybody read it, see if anybody agreed with us. And within a few weeks, we had 275,000 downloads of it. Um, and we've gone on to write other things that have had in excess of 50,000 uh, reads and downloads. So um, although we can't tell you definitively how many people experience oral injury, we can certainly tell you that if you consider that 900,000 people are doctors in the United States and 275,000 people have read an article about this and emailed us, um, it, it certainly hits home with a lot of people. Yeah. And, and actually, just, just to add to that, it's gotten out into the more common um, knowledge. The New York City Council on Hospital Oversight just mentioned moral injury as a problem in their hospitals and their emergency rooms that they feel needs to be addressed. Hmm. Yeah, and then there's the problem uh, that... You know where 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 are the physicians coming? Because part of this is a workload issue, I think. Right? Uh, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but part of it is you walk into any reasonably sized emergency room, what you see is sort of controlled, barely controlled chaos. You see people just trying to move people in and out of beds and address as much as they can with this never-ending deluge of of people. And that alone, at least in my my case, I know that directly contributed. I felt like I'd never give adequate time. Like I was always missing something or I couldn't get to the root of a person's real problems. I wasn't giving them what they were due. Yeah, I, I wonder what that solution is if, if you know, you, you've already got, you know, physicians that are um, wanting to find a way to get out. Yeah, I mean, how do you meet that? I mean, what I guess that, what is that? What is the solution for that? Is it just more people and more, more backs? Pulling the pulling well, so, the load, or I mean, I, I think one of the challenges that we get into in medicine is we put our heads down and we and we take care of the thing that's right in front of us. Yeah, right. So we staunch the bleed, we move on, and we take care of the MI, and we take care of the stroke, and we take care of the pneumonia. And things are moving so fast that you don't have time to pick your head up and think about the big picture. But it's it's and it's really hard in medicine to say, okay, wait a minute do we have to do things this way? Or is there another way that we can maybe think about how we take care of the patients that come to us? Um, you know, can we address the Impala legislation that is, what, 30 years old at this point, 35 years old? Oh, yeah. And oh, yeah. Maybe it, needs, maybe it needs to be revised. But instead, what I hear are administrators who say, well, Impala says we have to do X, Y, or Z. And CMS says we have to do LMNOP. Well, CMS is people. And Impala is, is subject to revision. But we need to ask the question and we, did, we need to think in a bigger picture way. And we need, to, we need to confront it maybe with a different way of thinking. Yeah, I, I'm going to be in politic here because I, I have gotten bolder as I've gotten older. And I'm getting older by the day, of course, and I get bolder by the day. Um, I realized something a few years ago. Uh, I was out in, of all places, Idaho, and I was talking to a group of family doctors that were uh, working in a community that had a hospital. And the hospital kept, I talked to the hospital people at one point, and they said, well, we, we're, we want to buy the, the physician's practices. Uh, we think it'd be a, such a great thing for them to be employed by the hospital. And so on a, on a date, a day, two days later or so, I was talking to the family physician group, and they said, 
Um, I said, so are you guys looking at a merger with the hospital? This big multi-specialty, well, it's multi-practitioner. It's a single specialty, but multi-practitioner. Like 20-some-odd family doctors in this one practice. And they said, no. We tell them, we can survive without you. You can't survive without us. And, <laughs> and so it, it was eye-opening to me in the sense of understanding, because I'm referring back to something you just talked about, about MTLA says. The they that says MTLA says is typically someone who is not practicing medicine, probably doesn't have a medical degree, has a master's in healthcare administration or something. And they're the ones telling us how we should do our job. And I've always wondered, and maybe you guys will feel comfortable or not, perhaps, commenting on this, why we as a profession allow people who have no idea what we do to tell us how to do our job. I, I don't understand that, because that seems to be part of this whole process, that we've, as, as, a, as a, a profession, we have allowed all these, I like, I'm actually very cruel about it, I just call them strap hangers. I, I, I look at them and say, you, you don't have an MPI number. Whatever you do all day long doesn't generate revenue. Um, I'm paying for you, and yet you're adding to my burden. Now, in any other business in the world, if I'm the person making the money, I would be able to say that your return on investment for me is awful. I need you to leave. And yet in medicine, for some reason, we seem to feel that this is a normal thing to have all these peripheral people telling us how we should do something that's been done for 4,000 years. And I'm not saying we should revisit, you know, two centuries ago of medicine. I'm pretty happy with some of the stuff we get to do today. But I'm saying as a practice, as a profession, I mean, it really strikes me. Why, why is it? Why is it that we are not being more verbal about protecting ourselves as the people with the MPI numbers who are making this whole system run? I, I don't get it. What do you guys think about that? Oh, you raise a really important point. Um, the ratio in the United States is now one clinician, sorry, one physician to six clinical staff to 10 administrators. And that ratio, you know, is, is extraordinary. And if you look at the, the changes over the last uh, 40 to 50 years, there's been a significantly greater increase in administration versus clinical staff. And I think much of this is due to uh, various political reasons and, and various um, rules that have come in place that have required more administrators to help with insurance billing and help with coding and help with all of these different uh, computerized medical record systems that we have. And I don't think it was always intentional that this was going to happen, but the results are quite disturbing when you look at those, those numbers. I think the, the second part of it is that you mentioned buying up um, small practices. Uh, the other part that's happened over the last couple of years is an incredible increase in startling of the number of practices that have been bought by private equity. Hmm. Now, if you thought that a non-profit hospital uh, was, was buying up practices, imagine what happens when private equity buy up practices because, of course, their primary interest is to their shareholders or the people that are going to be profiting from them. And so, uh, again, we've developed a system which has allowed this, but we really do have a responsibility to push back. And I think we have a responsibility to educate people about it because I think the vast majority of people aren't aware that this is going on until it's probably too late. Hmm. Uh, or at least it's well, gone yeah. past the point of no return. And I, and I think the, the challenge is that physicians don't always, you know, they're, they're desperate. They are, they are struggling to find a way to, to manage the healthcare environment right now, and so they say, well, if I sell out private equity, 
I don't have to worry about the business side anymore. I can just focus on my patients. But then what ends up happening over the long term is initially the private equity company might allow them to continue to manage their practice the way they like. But a private equity firm is in it for the exit. And they tend to want an exit within three to five years with a 30% um, return. And so in the end, the physicians may get bought out again, and then they end up with no control over their practice. Yeah. And you know part what? Of the, part, of the, part of the addressing this, I think, is, I mean, one of the things we've really focused on over the last 18 months is, is awareness among clinicians and awareness among physicians about what's going on. Um, but I think the next step is awareness among the patients because ultimately this is going to affect the patient. This is this is all these changes to our system, all these um, increases in administration, all these increases in cost of healthcare because of that are going to affect patients and are going to affect the care that they receive. And I think that it's really important that we we, we let people know about this so that they can um, they can be part of the solution as well. Yeah, I, I think it's really hard. I think people are overwhelmed with life in general. It's hard for patients to get their head around this. All they know, I just heard the other day, I was talking to the guy that helps us with the re- my, my wife and I with our retirement planning, and he was talking about how he has a health insurance policy now as an independent contractor. He has a health insurance policy that costs him $2,000 a month with a $5,000 deductible. And, uh, you know... I'm sitting there thinking, this is an individual with a relatively young, healthy family, and um, and yet two thousand a month for what amounts to catastrophic coverage. Uh, I mean, I think a lot of people, the, the 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 public that comes and sees us as physicians, I think they they may be just full up. I'm not sure they can comprehend it either. I think the system has gotten so crazy and so big. Um, and so leveraged. I love this. Six staff members and 10 administrators for every treating physician. I mean, yeah. it, it's it's so massive that I think people, I, I think we could tell them, and I think they'd be like, well, I don't know what to do about that. What do I do with that information? Um, because it's it's really terrifying when you think about it and you look at it and you realize what's actually going on. Um, wow. I, I tell you what is interesting. So, so, oh, go ahead, Wendy. So, so What's really useful for, for patients to know is that if they're seeing a primary care physician, they come in for a complaint of shoulder pain, and that clinician spends the first five minutes going through all of the checkboxes that they need to do every time that patient comes in. Yep. Have you had your vaccinations? Are you wearing your seatbelt? Do you smoke? Do you drink? That are irrelevant to the shoulder pain. Every time that happens, if a patient... You know, if they think about the reason that their clinician is doing that, it's not because they want to. It's because if they don't do it, they don't get full reimbursement. And that is a regulatory and legislative issue. And so where they need to start pushing back is to say, is to call their legislator or to somehow become active and say, I want to talk to my doctor about what my concern is, not about what yeah, that's excellent. It's, it's direct instruction and something a doctor can get around and just tell their patients about the, so what, what do I do? Um, I would also say something and maybe you guys and we'll end this first segment and, um, with this thought and maybe we will get into it a little bit and then come back and get into it. But 
the moral injury of practicing medicine today, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, may also have to do with the abrogation of our fiduciary duty to our patients. And I w- and the reason why I say that is, you know, I'm a capitalist. I I love I love iPhones. I love people making money off stuff. But as a physician, I'm my patient's advocate. And to me, especially as a family doctor, my my feeling is I have as much responsibility in making um, their encounters with me a thank you, thank you episode where they're getting charged something they think is reasonable for the services I provide. Um, that to me is moral capitalism. And so I, the people I see they're doing this, by the way, are direct primary care doctors who basically their charges are up front and they tell patients this is what's going to cost. And I have a responsibility to do things for you and you need to know what you're getting charged for which I don't see anywhere in healthcare. And I'll tell you what, that's a big burden on me as a physician in that I can't even tell a patient what they're going to get charged for seeing me. At least I couldn't. Now that I work for the state, you know, it's with a very close population, but that was a huge burden. I, I mean, like people would say, well, I don't, what do you, what do you, what is, what does this cost? I said, I have no idea. I mean, to me, I mean, that probably has some impact on moral injury of physicians. I would think, what do you think, Wendy? I mean, I think Simon would be a good person to answer this. Sure. <laughs> I, I, I really like what you're saying about you being a patient advocate um, because I say this all the time and I try to explain this to people that uh, when they come to see me, I'm, I'm there for them and my whole role is for the patient first. Um, and I think, um, unfortunately, the, the, the way that society is, Sometimes people don't fully understand that. There's very few times when you go into a contract with someone, whether it's, whether it's a business contract or a moral contract, where your role is actually to do everything for the other person and to put yourself second. Um, so I think it's a really important, uh, very important part of it. And it is one of the reasons why moral injury is, uh, is so profound because um, when you're always putting the patient first, as we absolutely should, there are all these other things that impact on you and where you have to make compromises and decisions that are difficult decisions sometimes. And so I, I think it's a very important point to make. Yeah. So, so the other thing, if I could just comment. Please on, do, Wendy. On a we'll close on this between one. This, um, between this and something you mentioned earlier, um, which is that you know, physicians, they're the driver of revenue in healthcare. But at this point, physicians are answerable to everyone in healthcare. So they're answerable to the chief financial officer, the safety officer, you know, the regulators. They're answerable to everybody. And in fact, what I would really love to see happen is for the entire machinery of healthcare to turn the other way and ask physicians, what can I do to facilitate your relationship with your patient? Yeah. I've always said there'd be great changes in healthcare if administrators were given Prescani scores. Uh, you know, and that's, yeah, I'm glad there's, there's synchronicity going on there. So the fact of the matter is, is that it, it's true, right? If, if, if administrators could get press Kinney scores from the people that are making the money, um, that might be a really interesting thing to see what those turn out to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially if it's tied to their productivity and their bonuses and whatever else they get. Um, yeah. Well, you guys willing to, to talk to me a little bit longer? 
Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna close out this segment, um, and I have some things to start with. Uh, but for for the time being, I, I want the people listening to this to really think about this. Some of you are gonna be physicians, and some of you are physicians, and some of you are just lay patients that are trying to sort out why. How, here's a question for you: When you walk into a big hospital, it looks like an International Airlines departure lounge. Tell me how that's helping your healthcare because it costs a lot of money to do that, and someone's got to pay for that. I mean, these are the things that doctors think about, about how, how is this really helping patients? And so with this conversation with um, with Wendy Dean and, and Simon Talbot, both MDs and both very interested and in, in strongly vocal proponents and well-written about moral injury, I think maybe that's a good place to, to, to break off. And then in a week or so, you guys will hear the continuation of this conversation, and I look forward to it. And so, Wendy and Simon, thank you. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll do it again here in a second. Rotations is the weekly podcast of all things medicine and science as part of the media and medicine family of medical storytelling. The opinions and comments expressed on Rotations do not reflect the official or unofficial positions of the Ohio University, the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, or the Scripps College of Communications. Guests on Rotations are interviewed in an unopposed fashion so their ideas and opinions can be freely expressed. This episode of Rotations was produced by Todd Fredericks, hosted by Todd Fredericks, and edited by Todd Fredericks. Rotations is co-hosted by a league of champions of all things medical and a few people we sometimes pull off the street. Rotations is copyrighted, and while we welcome citations, tweets, Facebook likes, and other endorsements via word of mouth and social media, we reserve the right to all content. You may use Rotations content under the provisions of Creative Commons, but you cannot alter or edit the content in any manner without express permission of the content creators. You must cite Rotations as the source of any content derived from the podcast. We welcome any comments, and you can contact us by tweeting us at Medical Cinema for Todd, at Prof Plow for Brian, Nisarg Bakshi for Nisarg Bakshi, and at Rotations PCAST, or by visiting mediaandmedicine.com slash rotations. Check us out on Facebook at Media and Medicine. And finally, from me, Todd Fredericks, you can also send me a message through my Facebook page at TR Fredericks. But please, I have a sense of feelings, so embrace your inner non-hater.